0: This is Kevin and Welcome to the Think Outrageous Radio Show. Our guest today is Erica Piler. Uh, Erica, welcome to the show. And I'd like to fill in a little bit about your background. You're an author, speaker, accomplished leadership performance coach, and a high-impact facilitator. You work with uh, Fortune 500 companies as well as CEOs from uh, in small to mid-sized companies. So welcome to the show. And, uh, talk about your, your, your CV. How did you get to the point where you felt right?
1: How are you? Oh, thank you for, uh, for that introduction. And yes, happy to be with you today, Kevin. Um, a little bit of background on me. Um, I grew up in the healthcare and pharmaceutical industry. I'm a pharmacist by training. So I have a fixation on how drugs work and, I transitioned that into uh, how leadership works. So after about 20 years of marketing sales, um, I was a general manager for a $400 million uh, Pharmaceutical division uh, did a lot of strategic initiatives and, and planning. I transitioned into my own business, and a lot of the work I did actually in the corporate world was on transformational change. So when I came into opening up my own leadership uh, coaching and consulting firm, I was really interested in transformational change on a personal level and an organizational level. And for about the last ten years, I've been doing not only leadership coaching but customized leadership journeys for. Uh, CEOs and their leadership teams to help them get to their version of organizational excellence and high performance by what I call high impact facilitation, which is having the courage to have the necessary conversation and not being afraid of going anywhere that we need to talk about.
0: Excellent. So do you believe leadership can be learned?
1: Absolutely. Um, and it's always, uh, you know, an important question to pressure test, you know, is it nurture? Is it, you know, nature? You know, there is nothing in my uh, experience that would suggest leadership can't be learned. Now, the critical piece to keep in mind is, is the leader open to learning it? And are the leaders that we're talking about willing to do the work? So, you know, can you be a great tennis player? Can you learn to play tennis? Absolutely. Are you willing to do the work? that's another story. And while each leader might have some natural gifts, just like in tennis, I may have some natural gifts. My ability to truly be a competitive tennis player or to truly be a high-performing leader depends on the amount of effort and work and conscious discipline I'm willing to put into my practice.
0: So you talk about uh, nature versus nurture, and you you, you talk about in the book about the emotional intelligence model. Where does the EQ issue, where does that fit into the nature? versus nurture is yeah, it so, easier for some versus others or
1: well and and it is fundamentally you know what EQ is really all about is are you able to build healthy relationships You know, are you able to know yourself, be self-aware, are you able to manage yourself, both good and, you know, maybe uh, negative tendencies? Are you able to show up and be with other people so that you can have healthy, productive relationships? Now some of us are naturally affiliative, we're naturally relationship builders. For others, we may be more task oriented, you know, driver, driver, don't get in between me and the goal that I want to accomplish. For those folks, they have to flex a lot more to being self-aware about being distant or not necessarily being uh, aware of body language or signs that are happening in the external environment. For some of us, it's a real natural place to be. And, you know, we might be very attuned to, wow, did you see the reaction when you said that, Kevin, for that individual? You might go, no, I didn't even notice at all. So emotional intelligence is how do we learn how to have healthy and productive? relationships. And through self-management, self-awareness, social awareness, we can learn what's necessary to get better at that.
0: Do you think the business world is adapting to the concept of emotional intelligence and its value in general? So,
1: yeah, it's a great question. In my experience, and, you know, emotional intelligence came on the scene, I'm going to say, You know, it's almost maybe about 20, 25 years ago, but it's reached an absolute clear tipping point in progressive organizations and in many large-scale organizations. I would say um, a lot of people are not only talking about emotional intelligence, they're hiring, they're promoting based on this concept of emotional intelligence. And I think, you know, where the real opportunity is for entrepreneurs and the small to mid-sized space companies out there is... It's out there and it's really at that tipping point. Like I said, more and more companies are, are getting comfortable with it and incorporating it into their um, HR practices and, and other uh, talent management areas. But for entrepreneurial companies, you can leapfrog this. You know, you can get some of this learning into your organization and take your organization from chaos and mayhem to much more structured um, disciplined understandings about how relationships work and how you could get performance and productivity from it. You know, Kevin, one of the things that I love about the work that I do is I tell people, seriously, look, I've come from running a business and I know we have to make money and it's top and bottom line. But these soft skills, emotional intelligence and learning how to have healthy relationships, it absolutely has a direct correlation to your performance and productivity. So this isn't soft for the sake of being soft. It's soft because it results in hard uh, outcomes.
0: Do you see the day when what you're describing, leadership, effectiveness, and growth, is a is a subject matter in college to teach the, the business students?
1: <laughs> you know, that actually, I love that question because I think we've actually missed so much of the opportunity in our baby boomers for sure, Generation X, and we've probably even missed the millennials for sure because we've gotten late to the party on this but I think that we are starting to see emotional intelligence showing up in grammar school and high school now the tipping point of some of the social awareness around emotional intelligence is such a groundswell that parents are more astute and helping their kids understand it and I think it's really actually taking place at an even more grassroots younger place in uh, in schools because it's so powerful
0: yeah, it really is. So you mentioned millennials, the the uh, the scourge of the uh, corporate world today. <laughs> what what's your observations, experience, and and uh, sage advice regarding working with the millennials?
1: Well, we we certainly all seem to have a commonality in a struggle. You know, and, and I think that that struggle is both their struggle to, you know, find their perspective in what they're looking for and our struggle as maybe leaders of a generation or two beyond where they are to, to struggle how to appropriately create environments that inspire them and, and meet their needs. But I'll tell you this, here's my, here's my take. I think they're really holding us to a high bar and I think they're taking our leadership to a really great place if we can embrace it. You know they want a ton of feedback what have we struggled with if we're a baby boomer or generation X you know we don't like to give feedback feedback seems like it's hard it's negative I don't want to tell someone you know that they're not doing anything Millennials want the feedback now you know, you can you can debate whether you know can they handle the the tougher feedback and opportunity for growth as much as you know the positive feedback. So you know, I say that I say that as a, a struggle and an opportunity. But they want the feedback, they want the learning. You know, they may want to go faster through some of the experiences, thinking you know, hey, I don't need to you know go through the same path that you went through. And and I actually believe that because I'm a I'm a fan of. I think today's world is moving so quickly that whoever is in a leadership role really needs to look at potential and uh, capability and capacity and composure. So, you know, the experience of you being in a role 20 years and maybe punching the ticket and really knowing the way forward, that used to be yesterday's scorecard for advancement. But for today, I want to know, how much agility do you have? Do you have the capacity to flex and, and get greater amounts of work done through other people because you know how to organize work better and you know how to use technology? And do you have the composure to really deal with that VUCA world that we're in, you know, that volatile, uncertain, chaotic, ambiguous environment that we're all challenged with? Do you have the temperament to lead in that environment? So I think millennials have an opportunity to really leapfrog some of the folks that are out there, but I think it's a it's a struggle right now to figure each other out.
0: Yeah, it really is. It's very foreign one of my more, my more cynical days, one of my theories is that the millennials are very focused on, uh, more focused on the quality of life than they are on results, both personally and for their employer. That, uh, I, uh, some days I think this is the product of a, uh, a very abundant place and, and time, uh, that they need to go through a recession to, uh, begin to worry about a paycheck and not so much about whether they can bring their cat to work, and it'll be interesting <laughs> to see to see you know, how they how they because uh, right now, as I talk to uh, other baby boomers, they put up with the they call it putting up with the uh, the uh, millennials because there's such a shortage of good employees that they'll put they'll put up with it and let them bring the cat to work. As Soon as the uh, well
1: you- your yeah let me so let me make <laughs> let me make a, a comment on this and and look you know i'm i'm a i'm an Xer right so i'm on the mm-hmm. early stage of x I, I i've been you know reared by the baby boomers you mm-hmm. know in, in my in my professional life so you know i certainly understand you know boomers and and are working with a lot of millennials so so I think where they've done us service. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated that I didn't get the opportunity to maybe have the same experience that they're having. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've grown up and we've grown up in, yeah, work-life balance, you know, the elusive thing, you can have everything, you just can't have it all at one time, right? You know, and it's always been these really hard choices. Right. And, I, and I think, you know, they're really challenging us to say, all right, well, if, if I have to work this much, and I, I'm not willing to let go of having what I want in my life, how do I integrate it? And, and how do we make it, um, seamless? And I think, you know, we're not used to that kind of a lens on the world. You know, there's right. been, right. you know, work and, and life and they have a, they have a very integrated and seamless view of it. And I think that's not going away. So I think the really interesting part is, all right, how do we catch some of the benefits that these guys are naturally attuned to? And, you know, if it's bring your pet to work, hey, you know, there are articles out there that say pets in the workplace, you know, make happier workplaces. Right. All right, maybe I could get some of that happiness. That's
0: right. <laughs> I, I agree with all that. It'll be interesting to see, you know, if, if, there's an, if there's enough data to see if there's an effect on the bottom line with a more balanced work life. Um, I agree. Uh, I'm, I'm curious about that too. Yeah, it'll be fun to watch. Well, so talk about so teams. You know, there's been – Zillions of, of uh, words written about teaming and the value of it. Um, what's your theory which, on how to build a good team?
1: So I think teamwork, I really do think, is is one of the hardest things because, you know, we get pretty far down the road today. I think we know enough about teams to know that, you know, hey, we have to trust each other. You know, we have to have productive conflict. I mean, there are a lot of things you we know we have to have to Accountability. Um, But the magic of a team to me is still having that, you know, shared goal and that shared purpose and then learning how to be real with each other, not tolerant of each other right? Be real with each other. I mean, there are going to be times when you say something, Kevin, it's not going to land on me well. And instead of just saying, oh, that's just Kevin being Kevin, I got to clear the (laughs) air with you. I got to say, hey, listen, dude, you know, that landed on me this way and it made me feel like this, you know, and I got to give you an opportunity to step up and say, hey, you know, I apologize. That wasn't what I was looking to do. We have most of our teams at a low level of performance because we have baggage with each other. You know, we have baggage, we have barriers, we don't want to talk to that person, that one knows me or this one that much. If we can keep the air cleared, if we can keep that dialogue as wide open, as honest and as real as we can, there's no problem we can't solve quickly in business. The complexity is our emotions, our struggles with power, our egos, our lack of communication. It's all on us. And we're the messy part of this equation. So if we could figure out how to just keep it real, keep it open, and deal with whatever really comes our way, the business problems are, sh- are more simple.
0: I agree. Where do you see the manager's role in that when they, when they see employees are struggling with their uh, respective styles?
1: So, okay, so this is an interesting thing because I think, you know, A lot of the work that I do is at the top of the house and then I cascade down. Um, But I think one of the things that's really interesting, I have this model that's called um, the altitude model. And I say, listen, you know, there are three things we need to be mindful of. When do we do things? When do we manage? And when do we lead? And we have to play at the right altitude. And that manager, literally that manager of people kind of gets like caught in the middle, right? They can't micromanage and yet you don't want them to be too out of touch with what's happening. And they kind of land really square and center in that relationship kind of uh, approach because all of their work has to get done through others and they really have to empower and also train and develop people so they're kind of caught right in that middle are they going to manage and lead or are they going to manage and do and i find a lot of people struggle with this they're right on that front line so the effectiveness of that manager in terms of having the space to operate the freedom to operate and the clarity from their leader in terms of you know knowing what the uh, the expectations are they have to be absolutely vigilant about clarity of their role and clarity of their space, and clarity of the expectations and deadlines. And that's a place where most managers get lost. They're doing the best they can. They're trying to keep the trains running on time. But, you know, they perceive that, you know, their leader throws marbles under their feet and they trip and fall on them. Or, hey, my talent bench can't really support me. They really are caught in that middle. And I find it's the hardest place to operate in most organizations.
0: So when it comes to leadership in general, are you finding – uh, differences between men and women, or is it more generational?
1: So interesting, because, you know, so I'm a woman, and, and hey, you're a man, here's a newsflash, so we have <laughs> different <laughs> points you. of view on this. But let me let me turn this back to you, and just out of curiosity, to give me something to bounce back on, maybe give me your, your answer to that question first, and I'll give you the female version. You tell me from, you know, walking through the, the male gender perspective, what's your view?
0: Yeah, mine's going to be a little bit more... Of a centrist view, um, I have four daughters, and so I've I've, I've spent the last thirty years uh, being sensitive to uh, female issues in the workplace and, and the respect or lack of often. Uh, and so I don't I don't. It's hard for me to understand how you disrespect somebody based on their gender. It doesn't even mm-hmm. compute for me, um, but I know a lot of people do, uh, and I know. Some people use that as a crutch one way or the other. And so, um yeah. But I can't – the stereotypes drive me crazy because uh, they're always obvious, obviously very negative. Uh, if I were going to give a positive stereotype, I generally find that you – know, this gets talked about a lot. I don't know if it's scientifically proven that women are generally – I would bet on going to be healthier from an emotional – uh, an EQ perspective. Um, you know, if, if I'm in the in voting booth and I have to vote and, it, and I don't know the candidates at all, one's a man, one's a woman, I will always vote for a woman. Because um, at the end of the day, I think women will keep us out of more wars and, and they'll do what's right. And up until recent times, they don't seem to be as power hungry and uh, driven by the almighty dollars. So the chances for corruption seem to be less. I'm sure that will probably, you know, will be told that that'll change over time as, as everything else changes. But those, those are my core beliefs about men and women. Um, so I don't, I don't really have a lot of differences. I generally treat people for who and what they are. Um, but, no, that's, that's- I, but I get, I get it that the world does not do that.
1: Well, I mean, I just know I really appreciate your perspective and, and you know, I, I understand it and and empathize with it in a lot of ways. One thing that I have been really curious about, um, and I'll answer the question directly, but I want to give you just an, an indirect perspective first. So um, I do uh, a lot of diagnostics with the groups that I work with. I love to do MBTI, the Myers-Briggs Absolutely. assessment. And, it, and it's controversial. Some people like it. Some people don't. But... You know, what I love about it is when you understand how people are hardwired and specifically around decision making, which is, you know, where we sort of live in the corporate world and in the entrepreneurial world, we're always making decisions. You know, when people make decisions as a thinker, so it's thinker and feeler in terms of the way Myers-Briggs looks at it. So the thinker is that objective, you know, fact oriented. The feeler is subjective, a little bit more how it's going to land on people, more people oriented. And as I make my way through um, the corporate world and the entrepreneurial world, here's something interesting that I find. In the corporate, larger corporate world, we tend to have a lot more T's, objective thinkers. Right. In the entrepreneurial world, we have a lot of F's, you know, a lot of subjective. And these are folks that, you know, haven't grown up so much in that regimentated and um, structured environment. You know, they've gotten to create some of their rules. They've gotten to create some of the ways that they like to do things. And I think entrepreneurs are attracted to some of that freedom, you know, in that decision making. And it's very interesting because if you look at the population, the majority of women would tend to be feelers. They're Mm -hmm. Fs. And the majority of men would tend to be thinkers. But you go into an entrepreneurial world and you see a lot of F-based men who tend to have more of these sensitive, collaborative female approaches and traits to working together. So, you know, I think one of the interesting things that I've looked at now with gender is I look at it as gender, but I also give a real heavy leniency to personality hardwiring because I think, you know, if you're an F and you just happen to be the gender of a man, you know, you just might feel very different than a woman who is a T on the extreme. So, you know, that's that's one way to look at it. Um, as a woman, I will tell you my experiences here. One is, I've been reasonably successful in my career, and I never allowed any thought of a barrier or a glass ceiling to get in my way. So I never had to shatter it because it was never there for me to shatter, Mm -hmm. on the one hand. On the other hand, I have experienced both active and passive gender bias at times. And I have been one who I've been blessed with the, uh, the confidence to either address it or, you know, deal with it in a way that it doesn't stop me from either making the point or showing up the way that I feel I want to show up. So it's not shut me down. It may have confused me earlier rather than later, but I feel like, you know, I, I've tried to power through that. And I think as women grow in their confidence and see other positive role models, you got to power through it and you got to call out that unproductive behavior and let someone know. That you know, that that's just not where we are in today's contemporary environment.
0: So I love that you brought up Mars Breaks. I live and die by it. I, I feel like it saved my life in my twenties. Is as, isn't as how's that?
1: I, How did well, you do that?
0: As an as an INTP, and off the scale on each one of them. So there's no there's no doubt about any of them in learning what that meant. It allowed me to survive in an, in a extroverted world. Because up Mm to that point, extroverts made no sense to me. And I would write them off as fools often because they'd say things that they didn't, they had to take back or didn't make sense. And then when Mm -hmm. I learned, when I learned eventually that what they're saying externally, verbally are the same things I'm thinking internally, I just did it four times before I said it. So I saved myself from Embarrassing myself. Extroverts don't do that, uh, generally. No. Uh, so that's same, great. Because it allowed me to understand extroverts. Because up to that point, I didn't understand them at all. And so, that's been a big part of my life.
1: So, so for w- me, let me just, let me just share this one story with you because I think it's so, here's how I have learned so much as a coach through introverts. So what's so interesting is I'm that extrovert, right? So I'm thinking out loud and things are kind of coming across. And I'd be coaching an introvert and I'd say, you know, I'd ask a question like, hey, Kevin, what do you think about whatever? And an introvert might say to me, I don't know. Well, that's their way of saying, I don't know off the top of my head. I need time to think about it. Right. Right? And once once I understood that, I'm like, okay, well, if you did know, let me just give you a moment to think about it. And I would just sit there. I would doodle. I would just create some space. I would just (laughs) let them have that moment because what happened when I was patient enough to let them have that moment was they came out with friggin' magic. It was yeah. like, oh my god, that was an amazing insight you've you never curve. gotten to. Oh it's my a hard, god. It's the
0: hardest thing for extroverts to do. They think you're mad yeah. at them or, or that you've changed the channel in your head. Uh, the other one was, um it was helpful was learning that I was a P, an extreme P, and, you know, <laughs> I'm gonna, run companies, and when I accepted the fact that I was a P and quit faking it to be a J, I, um Surrounded myself is you know, with the uh, staff. that were J's, but but, but had pleasant personalities because I didn't. I don't like to be pushed, obviously, and uh, sure. so that that saved my life and made me successful. So I could use the values, uh, the benefits of being a P in uh, and I, uh, but had to to uh, shore up around me to uh, be productive and survive in a J world. Which business and, and is, it
1: is. Yeah, it is. It Well, it's a, an ESTJ world, really, that, that we live in. And what's so interesting and what you said that's so, you know, right on is so many of my clients and certainly at the top of the house when this happens are Ps, right? It's the world according to them. And by the way, I'm a P as well. Um, mm-hmm. and one of the things that I try to help them understand, which you get already is how do you create freedom within structure, right? I need right. to be able to get people who have some structure around me, but I need to be able to move through that space in a way that has some spontaneity and freedom to it, because I don't like to be boxed in and locked in. But I need to be able to meet meet the deadlines because, you know, my philosophy is, hey, I need to have an in-service mindset. Everyone's trying to get, you know, stuff done. I don't want to be the one throwing marbles under everybody's feet. So who's going to keep me organized? Who's going to keep me on time? Who's going to keep me moving forward?
0: thing. Great conversation. Great book. I, I would highly recommend that our listeners read it. Um, and let us know, um, Erica, how do our readers find you?
1: Yeah, so a couple of ways. One is uh, the book is available on Amazon.com, and the book is Leadership Rigor. Um, you can tweet me. I am at, at @ericapeetler and that's P-E-I-T-L-E-R. You can go to my website, EricaPeetler.com, um, and if you're interested in talking more about Myers-Briggs or any of the things, Kevin, that, that you and I have talked about, I'd be happy to, uh, to talk to any of your listeners who want to learn more.
0: Great. Thank you very much for the time today. And I'd like to thank our listeners for thinking outrageously on a daily basis by listening to the Think Outrageous <laughs> Radio Show. Thanks, Erica. Thanks, Kevin. Great interview.
2: Do you know how much your company is actually worth? No one does until a real buyer offers real cash in a real transaction. Our job is to sell your company, not just analyze it. If you don't want to leave any money on the table because you've worked too hard to settle for less, engage a trusted specialist with a track record of closing deals for outrageous prices. At Clayton Capital Partners, our sell-side mission is straightforward. Exceed each client's expectation throughout the process, and especially at closing. We have the skills, the people, and processes to do so. Visit our website, www.claytoncapitalpartners.com, to learn more about our firm, including our processes, proven results, and frequently asked questions about buying and selling. At Clayton Capital Partners, our focus is your deal.
0: This is Kevin Short, and welcome to the Think Outrageous radio show. Our guest today. Is Mike Smith, the author of The Native Advertising Advantage, Build Authentic Content That Revolutionizes Digital Marketing and Drives Revenue Growth. Mike is has been with the Hearst Communications Corporation uh, for Her, specifically Hearst Magazine's digital media, and is senior vice president of advertising platforms for Hearst. Uh, he's responsible for the digital media platforms. And particularly the revenue ones. So, his previous book, Targeted, was named one of the top six business books to read by Inc. and won the and won the Axiom Gold Medal Award for Best Advertising Marketing Book for 2015. So, Mike, great resume, great accomplishments, and uh, very timely the the book you've written. So, welcome to the show, and uh, our listeners are always struggling with the digital revolution. Uh, Many of them missed it and they're trying to catch up. So uh, welcome to the show and and, uh, thank you for taking the time.
3: Thank you, Kevin. It's my pleasure.
0: So talk about uh, native advertising. Why don't we start off with uh, a definition so that everybody understands what you're talking about. What does that mean when you say that?
3: When I – when I wrote about uh, native advertising in the native advertising advantage, I wrote specifically about digital native advertising. I did include a magazine example with one of our automotive advertisers, but the, the, the majority of the book and the topic itself, which I'll define for your question, uh, was for me digital. And in, 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 in the last 20 years, digital advertising has generally been classified in one of two categories paid search the types of ads we see on google or the second category would be display advertising often called banner advertising which includes display advertising like uh, pre-roll video and other formats but native advertising is a third uh, and somewhat newer category newer as of the last five years and what native advertising is because search ads and display ads are familiar, I'm sure to your Mm -hmm. listeners, native advertising uh, itself has six categories. And the, the category that I chose to write about is branded content. When an advertiser partners with a publishing company, a media company to in a sense, co-author content, stories, and and um, by, by co-authorship, I, I don't necessarily mean that the advertiser themselves wrote it or participated in the writing of it, but the, the advertiser at least steered the production uh, in part or in whole. And that's the type of native advertising that I write about, native advertising That looks like content, but is nonetheless disclosed as, uh, brought to you by an advertiser and, um, fits the form and function of the, uh, the, the, the publisher that's being visited by the consumer, the digital consumer. So talk about, you talk in your book about the effects,
0: the effect DVRs have had on the advertising uh, world and that folks are zooming through commercials and that they're subscribing to Netflix or Amazon with no commercial. Talk about native advertising in that content, that context. Is this an attempt to st- reach those readers or viewers in light of all the techno- technological changes?
3: Sure, I'm happy to. It's a great question. So so what you're referring to with DVRs is is a consumer's ability uh with that innovation to skip the traditional 30-second television commercial. And and advertising historically for for students of 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 advertising history uh will recognize that uh, there exists a value exchange with the consumer uh for his or her attention and so the content uh, programmer uh, the media company the advertiser that accompanies the content programmer are are partnered in an effort to um uh maintain the the attention of the consumer now devices have been invented like the DVR to empower consumer to skip ahead in in the on the internet, in the digital realm, uh, the, the phenomenon over the last several years has been ad block. So you I can install with relative ease an ad blocker, a piece of software that either attaches to our desktop computer's browser or our mobile iPhone browser, and literally all the display ads are blocked. And so... Native advertising, because the branded content type of native advertising looks like the articles that you're going to visit, right? It looks like when you go to the New York Times and read an article or when you go to L.com or Esquire.com or Forbes.com, there are articles published by journalists in the newsroom. And there are articles that are published in collaboration with advertisers, the native advertising. and that type of advertising today does not get blocked by an ad blocker. And and the rate of ad blocking on display ads on banners is, is actually quite growing.
0: So two, two thoughts. Are the cost of ads going down in the traditional media because folks are not using, not looking at them very much, or they're being blocked, et cetera, et cetera. Is that cost of that ad going down because it's less effective? And do you see the day coming like everything else that technology keeps evolving that they'll be able to block this type of ad?
3: Well, I'll I'll start with the premise of your question with regard to the cost of ads going down. The the basic supply and demand works here. So the cost of ads actually goes up because the supply of ads with ad blockers becoming more and more prevalent, uh, the supply is going down. So, so, a lot of other things are happening in parallel, in addition to the ad blocking phenomenon. For example, on the internet, I mean, in magazines or in newspapers, uh, the 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 big magazine companies. I worked for 14 years at Forbes. So Forbes, Fortune, Business Week, The Wall Street Journal, those were the publications that that um, advertisers would run ads programs and ad campaigns on the internet. Sure, they'll run on Forbes. They'll run on the TheWallStreetJournal.com. They'll run on uh, Bloomberg, BusinessWeek, Fortune.com. But they'll also run through advertising technology intermediaries to reach the people who read those sites when those people are not on those sites. Mm-hmm. And and so what what happened with 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 the internet phenomena is there was more supply with with the with the same with, with less demand, uh, on a relative basis. So greater supply, prices go down. But, but as, as the supply, uh, dimension of that equation changes as it goes down, whether it's ad blocking or whether it's media buyers, advertisers deciding that they don't want to, uh, run on, um, third party long tail websites, to reach the finance customer, they want to run on finance websites to reach the finance customer because they've determined that in context matters more than any other variable. So, so the 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 supply affects the pricing and in the way that I just described. Now, onto the second part, the the ad blocking technology today does not specifically block native advertising. Uh, will it in the future? Potentially, I would imagine that the technological ability to block ads will, will continue to grow in different ways. And and hopefully it's not a cow and mouse game, but instead it's it's a, a, an innovation uh, in, in the spirit of trying to deliver value to the consumer. So if there's a segment or even a growing segment of consumers that feel like banner advertising is not something that they want to experience, well, well, then maybe there's other types of advertising formats that they're agreeable to. Native advertising at the moment appears to be one way to reach that. So
0: even I've accepted the fact that, uh, that whatever I learned today about advertising, marketing, technology, it's, it's going to be replaced as you're talking about soon. Do you have a sense of, after native advertising, what the next wave is? Have you seen that yet? What should we be thinking about today?
3: Well, I I can offer a few examples that we can start to think about. How each will scale is indeterminate. Uh, Virtual reality is an example of a new Mm -hmm. area. So will, uh, will more consumers adopt and at scale? Uh, virtual reality uh, experiences, and if and as they do, no doubt, new forms of advertising will follow those uh, new media experiences. So that would be an example.
0: Right. Absolutely. That's a great one. Um, makes perfect sense. Uh, I, so think any-
3: that, I think Snapchat, for example, I mean, in addition to virtual reality, there is the topic of augmented reality. Uh, where you're creating, uh, for lack of a better word, imagery within the um, the, 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 the the existing uh, scene itself. So I think one of the uh, great places to go and experience that would be Snapchat. Snapchat has developed uh, augmented reality. Uh, as, as part of the consumer experience, and at the same time, they're innovating their ad products to keep pace with their consumer experience products. So who should
0: be reading your book? Talk about the groups that ought to read your book for, for their benefit.
3: First and foremost, I would recommend people in digital uh, marketing, digital uh, advertising operations, digital sales, uh, maybe one concentric circle out might be uh, people who have worked in uh, quote-unquote print businesses like magazines and television, uh, magazines and newspapers, maybe also television in addition to the print businesses, folks who are beginning to uh, se- participate in the sale of uh, digital add uh, products I, I would recommend students of marketing uh, consider uh, reading the book students of business anyone really in media or an aspiring interest in media mm-hmm. yep. even journalists for example might find uh, the book useful
0: hmm our, our audience is primarily entrepreneurs and I can see I can see them and would highly encourage them to buy the book So that most of them, as you know, are self-made and they generally do their own marketing themselves or some version of it. I can see this helping them dramatically to um, to gain traction around this subject because most of us don't know much about it. We're hearing about it, we're talking to the the vendors who provide it, but we don't really understand the the underworking the inner workings of it. Um, In your book, you you give quite a bit of data about. Um, you quote, 2021 uh, native display ad revenue will make up 74% of total U.S. display ad revenue, up from 56% in 2016. And you go on and give a number of other quotes. You also talk about some examples of folks who are flourishing with it, Forbes, ConAgra, Intel, Um Talk about some of those examples so those listening can start to get their their head around that this is not something that's going to happen in the future. It's happening right now.
3: Sure. And has been happening and continues to happen and continues to grow. One of the examples that I uh, cite in the book, which which is a very highly regarded um, implementation of native advertising in our industry, is the New York Times. Uh, partnership with Netflix, uh, specifically for the release of the program Orange is the New Black. Mm -hmm. So Netflix partnered with the New York Times to create journalism, branded, sponsored journalism, native advertising. On the topic of women in prison, and they created uh, what most consider to be an incredibly informative uh, story about how the prison system was developed for men and not for women, and yet there is a large population of female inmates who are uh, housed in prison designed for men. And this this topic was of great interest to so many readers of the New York Times. And it wasn't in any way obvious nor overt that this was a branded content piece conceived of to promote Netflix is orange is the new black. So this was true service journalism brought to you by Netflix. And, and I think that's an example worth noting.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about that because I'm a little confused being a novice at this subject, my impression was uh, native advertising generally is identified by the publisher as being advertising I, what I or an advertorial or whatever it may be. What I think I heard you right. just say, because it was a service to the community, in effect, or to the readers, that it may not have been identified that way.
3: I apologize. I've created yeah. confusion that I'll clarify now. <laughs> it, the, 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 the disclosure was clear. The, the disclosure was clear. Um, and that's very important. I'm glad you raised this question because there are two uh, organizations that have given very specific guidance around how native advertising and branded content specifically should be disclosed. One is the Internet Advertising Bureau, which is the industry trade group, and the other is the Federal Trade Commission. So the FTC and the IAB have both published guidance to industry, to advertisers, and to publishers on how disclosure should most ideally be handled. And the, the New York Times has, has adopted uh, their interpretation of that disclosure guidance. Uh, that certainly applied to this um, Netflix article about uh, women in prison that I just mentioned. But I guess what I meant to convey uh, instead, is that as you read the story, it is not a promotional piece. It is not an overt promotional piece to view the show. It is instead uh, a story that informs the reader about this uh, subject matter. The subject matter not being the show itself, but the the topic of... Um, a population of women who are in prison that were designed for men, and so it's an informative piece. And and I found when I studied this uh, topic generally uh, very carefully in many many examples that I include in the book that the the stories that are not, for lack of a better word, shill pieces right. for the advertiser, the the stories that that add value that form or entertain, that's the kind of native advertising that works best. Instead, the stories that are perceived by the consumer as pushing the consumer to buy the product or, or to use the service, well, that type of native advertising and branded content works less well if at all.
0: So I read the article. I like the article a lot. I connect it to Netflix, and I give them, in my consumer brain, I give them points for objectivity, um, maybe some social conscience on their part. Uh, right. It, it may, it maybe it begins to affect my opinion
3: of Netflix, which is fascinating. Absolutely. Which is fascinating. Absolutely.
1: So next and,
3: time and- – and develops your interest in this topic,
0: right? Right. So it's, it's a win-win for Netflix. They're doing good things for for the uh, regarding the subject and their position in their show as a coming out of that conversation. Fascinating. That's
3: right.
0: Exactly. I love it. I love it. Uh, great topic. Great book is incredibly timely. Our listeners are just starting to hear this term on a regular basis. So great having you on the show. Thank you for writing the book and uh, spending the time with us. Our, our guest today is Mike Smith. The book is named The Native Advertising Advantage, Build Authentic Content That Revolutionizes Digital Marketing and Drives Revenue Growth. Makes perfect sense. I highly recommend it. Uh, Mike, uh, tell us where they can find you if they want to follow up with you and some of the other things that you've written and where they can find the book.
3: The, the book is available in, uh, in in retail bookstores as well as on Amazon or on BarnesandNoble.com. As far as finding me, my Twitter handle is MSmith, M-S-M-I-T-H.
0: Excellent. Well thank you very much for being here. And thank you Charlie. Thank you it's fascinating. And thank you to our listeners for thinking outrageously on a daily basis by listening to the Think Outrageous radio show. Thanks, Mike.
3: Thank you, Kevin.
2: Why is it that similar companies often sell at widely divergent prices? One of them going for book value, the other bringing in a small fortune. After pouring your time, energy, and money into your company, you deserve to squeeze every last dollar from your hard-earned investment owners rarely take every legitimate action to maximize their own leverage in the sale transaction in sell your business for an outrageous price Kevin short presents a structured playbook for sellers to win big you'll find out why some businesses sell for outrageous amounts as well as how to minimize your risk going to market the book introduces you to Kevin's proactive sales strategy a rigorous process for positioning your company to sell to a well-financed buyer at the best possible price You'll find out how to prepare yourself and your company for sale, understand your asset and how it benefits prospective buyers, and identify and remediate any issues that could prevent a sale or drive down sale price. It guides you step-by-step through the outrageous price process designed to uncover and make the most of your company's competitive advantage, create a sales strategy that highlights your company's value to potential buyers, identify outrageous buyers, and Find a transaction advisor who knows how to orchestrate sales that lead to outrageous offers. Filled with one-of-a-kind strategies, this book offers you your best shot at achieving your ultimate goal, selling your company for an outrageous price. To learn more, visit www.thinkoutrageous.com. This book has won 11 International Book Awards. I know you'll find it very valuable as you prepare to sell your company.